Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. invite you to take your copy of God's Word and let's open together to the New Testament book of Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter 2, our text today, verses 3 through 11. Last Sunday morning we began a little mini-series, just four sermons in length, around the subject of Christian service. We saw last Sunday in 1 Peter chapter 4 that the fact that time is drawing nearer For the second coming of our Lord should not drive us to seclusion. It should not motivate us to sit and wait. Rather, the prospect of Christ's imminent return should give our service to Him and to one another a greater sense of urgency. Of course, New Testament believers, the primary way we serve Jesus is by ministering to one another in the context of our local congregations as we bring to bear our unique spiritual gifts that the Lord has provided, distributed by His Holy Spirit. We're motivated to service, we saw last week, as we love one another with a fervent love. Even though living in such close proximity, we're bound to rub each other the wrong way from time to time. We're bound even to sin against one another. We can continue serving in the same congregation when we are fervent in our love because the Scripture says love covers or forgives all manner of sin. Now, the main takeaway from last Sunday, I hope for you, was a reminder that the goal of all Christian service is the glory of Christ. We are to magnify His name and His reputation, make much of Him and little of ourselves. And so to accomplish that goal, we must take on the attitude that John the Baptist exhibited. You remember there were some people that came out to John when he was at the height of his fame and believed him to be the object of worship. And he was repulsed by that notion and he quickly said of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. And the irony of that truth is that the greatest example of true humility was not John the Baptist. Jesus said of John, none greater was born of women. Rather the greatest example of true Christian humility is none other than the Lord himself. And this classic passage, Philippians chapter 2, is a familiar one. I never want to apologize for preaching familiar texts. I suspect I have preached this text more than any other in my 25 years of ministry experience. But it's a great one. It's one I need to hear often. It's one the church needs to hear often. So the title of the message today from Philippians 2, 3 through 11 is Serving with a Humble Spirit. That's exactly what Jesus did. Listen to the words of Paul. He says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him 
the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now right away in this passage of scripture, these familiar words of John the Baptist are ringing in our ears. Verse 3 of Philippians 2 says almost identically what John the Baptist said, that I must decrease and Christ must increase. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Paul is speaking here of diminishing pride. I must decrease, ego must decrease, pride must decrease, get smaller all the time. So, so that's our first point, diminished pride. We have often heard, haven't we, that one of the great obstacles to human happiness is a lack of self-esteem. Now, I will admit, I've met a few people in my life who have an unhealthy self-loathing, but the general condition of humanity is not that he thinks too little of himself, but that he thinks too highly of himself. People obsess about how best to treat themselves, how to live their best life. They spend countless hours creating an image online that they want the world to see that always casts them in the most favorable light. We know that entire industries and genres of media are built around the fact that people love them some them. But Paul writes to Christians that we as believers are to do nothing that is motivated by selfishness or empty conceit. Nothing. Zero. Nada. And if that is the case, that selfishness is an unworthy motivator for a Christian, then Christians, we must constantly be checking ourselves against that motivation because honestly, that is the natural state of humanity. What I mean by that is you don't have to teach a child to be selfish. He's born that way. She's born that way. We have to learn humility guided by the Holy Spirit. But Paul does not stop with a negative prohibition. He's not just saying not to be selfish. He's saying to replace that selfishness by putting others ahead of yourself. Now, in many places, if you said, I'm going to have the ambition in life to think of others more highly than I think of myself, a doctor would likely prescribe some therapy for you. But this is the commandment to every believer. Now you may say, Pastor, I can understand John the Baptist being on the same ground as Jesus, saying he must increase and I must decrease. But Paul is not saying, is he? He's not simply talking about magnifying Jesus before ourselves. He is talking about putting every other Christian ahead of ourselves. And you may be tempted to ask, have you seen some of these folks? I have. And yes, that is exactly what he's saying. Put every other believer ahead of yourself. He's saying more than that. It's not just that we must diminish our pride, but also we must expand our accountability. Look at verse 4. He says, do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. This is expanded accountability. Paul assumes, because he's been around a little while for this point, he assumes that as humans, we are going to look out for our own interest, 
But he says, don't merely look out for your own interests. So he says, don't stop there. Don't be satisfied with meeting your own needs. Here's what I think he means in context. When you got out of bed this morning, I, I'm going to predict or just guess what happened. You, right away, you started looking out for your own interest. You likely bathed yourself. You likely looked in the mirror and combed your hair. You fed yourself breakfast. You brushed your teeth. You found something clean and attractive to put on. And maybe you even treated yourself to a donut on the way to the sanctuary this morning. Or you will before Sunday school. You get the picture. You, you don't have to be reminded to take care of you, to look out for number one. But we do have to be reminded often to put the needs of others ahead of our own. Now, one of the great places we get to put this kind of humility in action is in our relationships. But specifically, the relationship of marriage. I was commenting to my father on our morning walk yesterday that marriage reveals one's sinfulness. When you take two people and put them together, even if both of them are born again, your true self is going to emerge. Now, when we come to church, we can fake it for a couple hours a week with our brothers and sisters. But when you live with someone, especially over a long period of time, they're going to see the real you. And marriage is a great crucible, a, a, a great learning place for sanctification. It helps us to see if there's any area of pride that we have not put under the submission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a great grace it is. I attended a 50th anniversary party Friday night, wonderful family in our church. And I was reminded of what Peter said about marriage. He said, it is the grace of life. It is a blessing of God. And one of the blessings is that it helps us as believers in the process of sanctification. And, and speaking of learning to love like Jesus, Let's not forget that we call ourselves Christians. This was a word that was thrust upon the church as a pejorative term by unbelievers 2,000 years ago, but one that we have come hopefully to embrace because to be Christian is to be Christ-like. And being like Jesus is the theme of Philippians 2. And it is really our next point, which is a Christ-like mindset. Look at verse 5. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on too tightly. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, another word for attitude is mindset. In fact, I believe the King James Version renders this verse that way. Let this mind be in you, this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And our attitude, of course, is revealed through our actions, through our speech, our behavior. So how or in what way was Christ's humility revealed in his actions? Well, I think in three fundamental ways that he points out here. Number one is through his incarnation. We often refer to this section of scripture as the kenosis passage. That's a Greek word which means to empty or pour out. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He emptied himself. He divested himself of the glories of heaven. Remember that Jesus did not have his beginning in that stable in Bethlehem. 
He didn't even have his beginning when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Jesus has always been and will always be. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity. All of the attributes of God are found in Christ. But the glories of being God did not have to be pried out of his hands, so to speak. He says he didn't hold on to that. I get the picture of an eagle who has a a trout in his talon. And that eagle will not easily let go. It has to be pried out of his hand. Jesus was not like that. He willingly opened his hands. He willingly relinquished the glories of heaven and condescended to take on human flesh at his incarnation. Now that is a mysterious thing. Because what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Well, it certainly does not mean that he ceased to be God for a nanosecond. He did not. But in some ways, he he left the glories and privileges of heaven so that he could suffer and die in a body. But it was not just his, his birth that showed his humility. It was his sinless life. He was not born into a privileged home. He was born into a humble home. And even members of his own household mocked him, jeered at him, called him crazy. Many in the general public thought he had a demon. He was eventually arrested and beaten, crown of thorns put upon his head and nails driven in his hands and feet. The scripture says he could have called legions of angels. He had that kind of authority. He could have wiped all of his enemies off the face of the earth at any moment. Yet he willingly suffered abuse for the sake of others. Because as he said, he did not come to judge. He came to seek and to save the lost. But he modeled true humility every day of his life. With his time, he put others first. Even in the final hours of his life, he took those moments to model humility to those closest to him, his disciples. Do you remember? They had a borrowed upper room there in Jerusalem, ostensibly to celebrate the festival of Passover with them. And when all of the guests arrived, they were busy arguing among themselves. The scripture tells us about which one of them was the greatest. No one bothered to wash the dust of the feet off their guest, as was the custom of the lowest household slave. And so Jesus quietly slipped away. He took the corners of his robes and folded them into his belt. He got a basin of water and a cloth and he quietly began to wash their feet. What an act of humility. But it was not his greatest act of humility. The greatest act of humility in human history was the death of the Lord Jesus. He allowed himself to be put to death by sinful men. I often remind us here, especially around the Easter season, when we think about the death of Jesus, that Jesus was not a victim. No one took his life from him. He willingly relinquished it. We know this because after he washed their feet and he instituted the Lord's Supper, they went out into into, uh, Gethsemane there in the garden and Jesus prayed, and the scripture records his prayer like this, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. In his humanity, Jesus didn't relish the thought of a whip upon his back. He didn't relish the thought of being publicly embarrassed by having his clothing stripped. He he certainly didn't look forward to the time when his fellowship with the Father would be broken. 
And yet he willingly submitted his will to the Father's for our benefit. And see, Jesus took the punishment that we deserved. He put our needs ahead of his own. He says, no greater love is any man than he lays down his life for his friends. That's the greatest act of humility in human history. So the question I've often had is, how could Christ willingly divest himself of the glories of heaven and condescend to take on a human body, a servant's body, frail, subject to pain, the elements and deprivation, put up with sinners like us, abusing him and slandering him and putting him to shame and, and what, is, what is more, dying in our place on a cross that we deserved. As I pondered that question, why he would do it, I think the answer must be found in verse 9. It's because of his eternal focus. Verse 9 says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and, and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do I mean that he had an eternal focus? Well, he says in the first phrase, verse 9, for this reason. Now you could replace that phrase with one word, and that word is therefore. Many times uh, that's how this phrase is translated in the Pauline literature. And I often tell our people in our Bible studies, when you see the word therefore, look at the verses above it to see what the therefore is therefore. What that means is because, because of what I've stated about Christ in the previous verses, here's the result of that. And so let's just walk through those things. He says, because Christ emptied himself of his glory, because he submitted perfectly to the Father's will, because he suffered and died a perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross for our sins, because of those things, comma, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name. God exalted Jesus, didn't he? Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Paul says there's coming a time in the future where every knee will bow of things in heaven. I take that to be the angelic beings. Of things on earth, I take that to mean all humanity. And things under the earth, I think that means even the de demonic hordes one day will bow their knee to the authority of Jesus Christ. That day is yet in the future. But in the mind of God, it's as if it's already happened. It's just as sure as if it has already happened. We've been studying through the book of Hebrews on Wednesday night here, and we're in chapter 11. But in chapter 12, having summarized these great men and women of faith in chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews holds up Jesus as the greatest example of faith. And he says this, let us, that is believers today, run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, the author and finisher of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, oftentimes when we think of looking to Jesus, uh, we, we have it in terms of not giving up. 
Paul says, forgetting those things that lie behind, I press on towards the goal of the high calling of Jesus Christ. It's, it's as if we're in a race and Jesus is waiting on the other side of the finish line and so I'm going to put my eyes on Jesus and not look behind me. That is one way, certainly an accurate way to, to look to Jesus. But when he says to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, he's saying that Jesus is the perfect example and model for all of those who would live by faith. The definition we've been working with here in our study of Hebrews of faith is the God-given ability to trust the promises of God. And so what I mean when I say Jesus was able to leave the glories of heaven and take on a body of a servant and suffer and die is because he trusted the promise of his father to exalt him eventually. If he would be perfectly obedient, the father would exalt him. And of course, that's exactly what happened. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, that introduction to the hall of fame of faith, it says that everyone who pleases God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That is the definition of faith, to believe the promises of God yet in the future. So Jesus trusted the Father was going to make all things right eventually, so he was willing to humble himself and condescend and become one of us. And the, the point of Hebrews 12 is if Jesus can do that, so can we. So when we live our lives and we order our days and we make our decisions motivated by selfishness and empty conceit, we show that we do not trust the promises of God. That's why Paul says, do nothing motivated by selfishness and empty conceit, but instead humble yourselves. That's not the only place the scripture says to humble yourself. In fact, that seems to be one of the great themes of all the Bible. The Bible says that God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. First Peter 5, 6 summarizes the point I'm making here about trusting the promises of God. He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. Now, the health and wealth preachers have an over-realized eschatology. They, they want to rush right to the exaltation without the suffering. That is, if you have enough faith in this life, God is bound to make you healthy and God is bound to make you wealthy. That is not what the Bible says. It says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. Now, what does that mean? Well, it seems to imply that you might suffer every day of your life for the rest of your life. There's no promise you won't. In fact, you might be thinking, Pastor, if I lived my life, if I ordered my days the way Paul says we're to do that, to put the needs of every other Christian ahead of my own, I, I know that people will, or, or it might be a chance that people will take advantage of me and abuse me. Well, you're wise. That, that's very possible. In fact, I would say if you live your life the way Paul prescribes here in Philippians 2, it is very likely that someone, perhaps many people, will take advantage of you and even abuse you because that's what they did to Jesus. And Jesus said a servant is not greater than his master. But Jesus was willing to be abused for the sake of the glory to come. See, in addition to Jesus and John the Baptist, there's another great New Testament example of humble service, and 
That's the author of Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul. Paul was very frank in the assessment of his own life. Paul had a good thing going before he was saved from a human perspective. He was well-educated, well-thought-of in the academic community. His uh, star was rising in that world. And when he came face-to-face with the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, everything changed in an instant. He was knocked to the dust, and he lost his eyesight for a period of time, and he was a broken man. But when his eyesight returned, he also had with it a new reason to live. And he spent the rest of his life not in vain pursuits of personal fame or godless ambition. He spent the rest of his life seeking the glory of Jesus. And what did he receive in return for it in this life? Well, 2 Corinthians 11 tells us, speaking of his own biography, he says, I was beaten times without number. I take that to mean Paul got beat up physically so many times for preaching the gospel, he lost track of how many. He said, often in danger of death, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers... Among false brethren, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. So it's not just the imminent danger of losing my life, which by the way, secular history tells us he had his head chopped off by a Roman guard. But one of the greatest burdens he bore was the daily pressure. He was so concerned about all the believers and their welfare. And you say, well, what a wasted life. Who would want to live a life like that? No one except someone who had great faith, who trusted the promises of God that if you will humble yourself in the here and now, God will exalt you for all of eternity. And that's who Paul was. And that's why he could write, In Romans 8, verse 18, having said all of those terrible things that befell him, he said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So Paul didn't say it's just glory that he'll receive or that Christ has received, but that every believer will receive if they'll live their life like that. That is all... God promises you. Just as Winston Churchill promised England nothing but blood, sweat, and tears in this life. Jesus promises to us that we'll likely suffer for his name if we live truly humble lives. Paul told Timothy that everyone who desires to live a godly life can expect persecution. We don't live for this life. We live for eternity. See, Paul had an eternal focus that allowed him to serve others, even when it meant his own pain. And so can we. 
This is what we're called to do each and every day, believers. He says, do nothing from selfishness or vain conceit. That is, put the needs of others first. Count them more important than yourself. There's not a period there. We can do that if we believe in this promise of great reward. This is how Jesus motivated his disciples. Remember what I told you they were doing when Jesus uh, brought them there to that upper room the night of his arrest? They were arguing among themselves which one of them was the greatest. If you go back and read those passages, Jesus did not rebuke them for wanting to be great. He rebuked them for going the wrong way about it. And he told them that in his kingdom, the greatest is the greatest servant. If you want to be truly great in the eyes of God, you have to be the greatest servant in the here and now. He said it this way in multiple places. He said, the last will be first and the first will be last. Don't be satisfied with being first here. Because if you're first here in everything that you do, you're going to be last for all of eternity. Don't be satisfied with that. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your salvation, as the greatest example of humility and the greatest example of faith, which is the God-given ability to trust that the promises of God are true. They are true. And we need to live like it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, we live in a world that is giving us a very different message and cue than the one we've read about in Philippians 2. We're told on every advertisement, on every station, in every medium, that if we're to be happy in this life, we've got to look out for us. We've got to put ourselves first, and we've got to take care of us, and we've got to manage our brand on our Facebook page and Instagram and we've got to put out an image that everything is perfect. And Father, you know that's not the case. You know our heart. You know that human beings are sinners and that we're selfish and we're cold. And Father, you want to change us. You want us to give us the mind of Christ, which is this attitude that puts the needs of others ahead of ourselves. Lord, we, we want to live that way, but we battle it in our flesh every day. We wake up in the morning looking out for ourselves. Lord, help us to look to Jesus as the great example. Lord, I think you've given many other examples in your word. Men like John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul and those great men and women in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11. Lord, I thank you that I look to men and women in this church as an example and a model for me. I, I strive and aim to, to live like they do, humbly, putting the needs of others first. Lord, I pray that would be the case for every Christian. I pray that it would be the rule rather than the exception. Father, when all of us are living our lives like that with a view to heaven and eternity, Father, when we are truly trusting in your eternal promises, Father, this will be a, a glorious church indeed. Lord, we, we, we ask for your help in that regard. Help us to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Help us to live for eternity with your help as the Spirit guides us. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. 
To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.